0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: Here. yeah. Yeah, What it is the exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I think it's, uh, it's a person who is Israel firster. Very, very strong Zionist uh, ideological bent. Definitely puts Israel above the United States for sure. Uh, secondly, I would say people who truly believe in violence and force as a way to solve every conflict. Um, people who have no use for diplomacy, um, internally or externally for that matter. Um, a messianic ideology, they are right, they are the best, and uh, they get to to make the calls. They don't need to consult or treat anybody with anything but contempt or bribery. So it's a very, it's a very shallow kind of ideology. Much less sophisticated than anything previously in the United States. The folks in charge were much more refined, much more complex, multi-layered. NeoCons are very primitive in what they do and how they operate. They're also very predictable.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andre Ryovsky, who blogs as the Saker. Today's show, looking into 2018. The Saker is an expert in military analysis, intelligence issues, Russian geopolitics and traditional Christian orthodoxy. He was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe, where he lived most of his life. After completing two college degrees in the United States, he returned to Europe, where he worked as a military analyst, until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. He returned to the United States and has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker, and his analytical essays are now widely distributed on the Internet. He is the author of The Essential Saker, From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World, and his newest, The Essential Saker 2*. Today we discuss the geopolitical outlook for 2018 and examine the possibilities for war or no war. Andre Ryevsky, welcome back to Guns and Butter. Thanks so much for having me,
1: Ronnie. It's always a pleasure.
0: In your recent essay 2018, War or No War, you take a detailed look at America's role in global geopolitics and come up with a very disturbing picture. You write that it is plainly obvious that the neocons are now back in total control of the White House, Congress, and the U.S. corporate media. What is the evidence that the neocons are now running things?
1: I think the strongest piece of evidence is the recent move by the United States to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, which is a typical kind of thing neocons would do. It's purely ideological. It is basically a a, a screw you to the entire planet. We do whatever the bleep we want, and we don't care. And it's also very characteristic of their lack of intelligence, because if you look at the consequences of that move, I mean, they're dramatic. Um, One of the biggest, most effective tools Israel had uh, in the Middle East was to have the United States impersonating uh, a neutral, you know, mediator. Everybody who was honest, you know, knew that it was a joke. The U.S. was acting on behalf of Israel. But that, that fig leaf of neutrality was crucial to push forward Israeli agenda. Now this is gone. The United States has basically removed itself from the role of a mediator, which is a disaster, I think, for Israel, actually, and very good for the rest of the region. So I personally welcome that move. I give it a standing ovation. But from the point of view of the neocons, the United States and Israel, it's an absolute disaster. Yet they did it. And I think this is just the latest in a long series of uh, attempts, clumsy attempts by Trump to appease the neocons because he realizes correctly that they formed the core uh, that opposed uh, his presidency, that they were the number one enemy. He tried to appease them, and all he did is sell out to them completely, and now he's basically just taking orders straight out of of Israel. Which, you know, it's debatable, is that a good or a bad thing? Um, I actually think that's actually a pretty good thing um, for the rest of the world. But it also is worrisome in in one way, because we see uh, that the people in charge of decision-making are pure ideologues who don't concern themselves with, you know, minor issues such as facts or logic or consequences. Uh, basically, uh, they are on a purely ideological position, which tells the entire planet, you know, uh, screw you, we do whatever we want, and uh, we're above you, and we'll just bully everybody around. And that the fact that we have a, a really embarrassing resolutions in the United Nations where the entire planet votes against them, including U.S. allies, votes against that, and, you know, just minor islands like Kiribati or whatever will vote for it is just horrible. Um, they don't think there are consequences to that. So we're not dealing with a rational actor. And that's the scary part. Uh, the good news is that they're incompetent. The bad news is that their incompetence can actually lead to very dangerous situations.
0: You have written that a disaster has been triggered by the U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and that the U.S. is not acting in defense of its own national security interests and that this is really frightening, which you've been discussing. How, in your opinion, will the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital adversely affect U.S. national security interests?
1: Well, first and foremost, of course, uh, the, the little fig leaf of, of neutrality now is gone. Um, there were people who were saying that all uh, all along, but they were dismissed as extremists, anti-Semites, conspiracy theorists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now that you see a superpower like the United States doing something which is self-evidently uh, counterproductive, you can only come to the conclusion that really, uh, you know, the U.S. in political terms is a colony of Israel. And that is just very, very damaging internationally. You um, have to put that in context, uh, a broader context. For instance, I don't think Obama deserved uh, his international prestige one bit. But it was, for instance, in Europe, it was extremely politically incorrect to say anything against Obama while Obama was in power, because Obama was, by definition and regardless of arguments, such a wonderful man. Uh, this is not the case with Trump. Uh, hating the U.S. president has become something politically correct in Europe. All my European contacts tell me and report that. So the U.S. is now a fair game for, for vehement criticism, and doing that kind of thing just provides more ammunition to those who criticize the United States. So what it ends up doing really is isolating the United States, and in the, in the Middle East specifically, all of U.S. foreign policy now completely rests on two countries, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, This is a disaster, because those two countries are locked in in a tepid to cold war with Iran. That's a war they can't win, and they can't win for a very simple reason, is that they have many advantages, but one thing they don't have is boots on the ground that they can actually use. And we saw that very clearly in Syria, where the United States is basically frustrated by this inability to actually put boots on the ground that make the— I'm not talking about a small contingent of special forces or maintaining a base in Kurdistan. I'm talking about actually participating in true combat. The Iranians can do it. The Syrians can do it. The Russians won't do it, but they could do it. But the Israelis and uh, Saudis can't. And these are the two allies of the United States, so allies that are hated by the entire region and at the same time who cannot win a war that they have embarked upon against Iran. That's a terrible choice of allies. So for all practical purposes, the Middle East is lost for the United States, and that recognition just seals a process, which began before that.
0: You write about the reality of the situation in Syria being the exact opposite of what the U.S. claims it to be, and that everyone knows it, but no matter, the U.S. government in its rhetoric simply describes a situation that doesn't exist. Can you talk about what is really happening in the war in Syria and how that contrasts with, with what the U.S. says is going on?
1: Yes, of course. Um, the simplest points, which I, I don't think anybody who would base his or her opinion on facts and logic would dispute, is that, A, al-Qaeda is a U.S. creation. Uh, what we see, B, what we see in Syria, you call them Daesh, al-Qaeda, ISIS, al-Nusra, IS, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Uh, I like to call them sometimes takfiris, sometimes Daesh, sometimes the islamic crazies, whatever we want to call them. This is a U.S. creation, first of all. Secondly, these people were pushed then and supported, and still are, as we speak right now, get military support from the United States and advisors and uh, uh, intelligence support. I mean, these are supported to the hilt. The United States says the opposite, that they are in a war against uh, Daesh, which is an absolute lie, and everybody knows that. Secondly, it's absolutely undeniably clear who won the civil war in Syria. Um, it's actually sometimes incorrectly stated that Russia did. I don't think that's true. I think Russia and Iran and the Syrians and Hezbollah did. You have to include all four elements. And I would put a special emphasis on Hezbollah and Iran, who did a lot of the, the, the hardest fighting on the ground. Not the United States. Not at all. Uh, they're now saying that, you, that Russia you know, took over the credits that rightly deserves, the United States deserves. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, and, And I think everybody knows that again. And coming back to your previous point, when you repeat a lie and you know that nobody believes you and you still go on repeating it, you are a pure ideological product again. You basically don't care about facts on the ground or even facts in the head of the people that you're speaking to. It's, again, I think a tremendous sign of weakness. That's something that the United States would never have done in the past. This is a really, to call water dry and black white is a new development, which, again, I would say is a very clear sign of neocon influence.
0: What about alleged attacks on the Russian Aerospace Forces airbase in Khamemans, Syria? You have written about this. What is the significance?
1: Well, that's a worrisome development. It is very significant. We're actually dealing with two separate instances. There was one overnight uh, that happened uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, This time they used drones to attack the base. Um, The attack was initially reported by one Russian source. It was exaggerated. But basically what it tells us is that um, the the Russian base there, and there will be provocations to try to either kill as many Russians as possible or make them pay or trigger maybe an uh, an exaggerated response on their part. I think it shows that the United States has a strategy uh, of harassing the Russians in a very provocative way. I actually wrote in my analysis of the upcoming year that I think there's a pretty good chance the United States will end up shooting down the Russian aircraft. Um, and the reason for that is, is that they will conclude that Russia probably will protest, might, do a, uh, might defend itself if attacked, but I don't think that Russia is willing to start an, you know, an open-ended war with the United States. And I think that kind of caution will be interpreted in the United States as a sign of weakness. Uh, Right now, overnight, they have attacked the the same Crimean airbase with with drones. Uh, The Russians managed to defeat that attack by shooting them, some of them down, actually taking control of others, forcing them to land. And actually, they're uh, taking them apart and showing interesting uh, parts about these drones. And some of them crashed on landing uh, when when either crashed or Russians tried to force them to land. But we're seeing clearly that that airbase and the port in are going to become targets. And I think this, uh, this is, I would say, worrisome in the short to midterm. There are ways that Russians can protect themselves. They have already changed the policy about how the base is protected. And uh, there are basically three circles around that base a short, like a kilometer distance, another one that goes up to five kilometers in the long run. This case, um, rockets can be stopped by the Russians, but mortar attacks coming from the second um, not sure called zone. It was not possible to stop them, and they did hit a number of Russian personnel. Not as many as Spain, but it was a semi-successful attack. So this is worrisome and shows that the U.S. policy in Syria will be to provoke Russia.
0: You write that the reality of the war in Syria is that the Russians sent a very small force and that this force did not so much defeat Daesh as it changed the fundamental character of the political context of the war. What do you mean by that?
1: Um, The Russian forces did play an important role in defeating Daesh. They provided crucial uh, bombing and close air support. So I don't want to minimize that. However, it is true that the force was tiny. I mean, ridiculously tiny. We're talking about 35 combat aircraft at max, which is really small. Uh, So, uh, first of all, it tells you how good uh, the personnel is, how advanced uh, the technologies they're using are. I mean, it's superb. They achieved uh, um, a sortie ratio and an effectiveness which the United States and NATO allies could only dream about. So, in no way do I want to minimize the, the importance of what they did. But the key thing was that Russia basically signaled to the world that we are not abandoning our ally. This is not, you know, the... the the Russia of Yeltsin, which was willing to sell out anybody. We will stand by, and we will extend that uh, political influence over Syria and and over the Syrian government, which I think is a crucial measures to everybody around. The Russians mean business. And that's what I mean, that the the dynamic of the war fundamentally changed, because the United States could not—I mean, Hillary actually planned to extend a no-fly zone over the Russian forces in Syria. Thank God Trump was elected if that didn't happen, because I think we were looking at real war in that case. Um, I think the fact that the Russians have basically put a no-fly zone over Syria, unless the U.S. is willing to truly enter a, a pretty major uh, suppression of enemy air defenses kind of operation, the, the Syrian skies are controlled by Russia right now. So they raised the bar much higher because dealing with the Syrian Air Force would have been extremely easy for the United States. It would have been a no-brainer. And there's nothing that Iran could have done if CENTCOM had decided to, to take the uh, Syrian uh, skies under its control. Now they're dealing with uh, a, a very challenging uh, environment for them, not only because there are, as I said, very few Russian aircrafts uh, present in the skies, and of those, only a minority are air supremacy aircraft, but Russia now has very powerful electronic warfare and air defenses in Syria. And this this is the main deterrent to a U.S. attempt to impose a no-fly zone, is the Russian air defenses there. And that is a true game-changer. So I think once the combination of those two things happened, a political message, uh, very effective support uh, for Syrian forces by Russia, but also, again, by Iran and Hezbollah. And the creation of, of an integrated air defense between Russian uh, equipment and Syrian-controlled equipment creates a completely new dynamic, which basically says that the war is lost for the U.S. and uh, Al Qaeda.
0: I'm speaking with author and military analyst The Saker. Today's show, looking into 2018. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that the neocons are now treating our entire planet to a never-ending barrage of threats. What are some examples of these threats?
1: Um, Well, I think the DPRK is the scariest of all. All this talk about, you know, Rocket Man and how Trump wanted to send a a formidable armada, I think, was the aircraft carrier battle groups that he wanted to send.
0: Uh, reneging
1: on the deal with Iran and sort of implicit, we're going to reaccelerate. Uh, I heard Nikki Haley openly referring to the fight we have with Iran. That's the threat. Um, the threats on Russia, by right? basically blaming Russia for everything that they don't like, uh, hacking, you know, whatever. Uh, we know the rhetoric is going to go up. So what's next? Like Russia will be accused of supporting terrorism. Uh, so there's threats made at, at Russia very clearly. Um, the attitude in the Ukraine, specifically towards the Donbass. Uh, sending weapons even doesn't make much of a military difference; makes a big um, political difference. The rhetoric on Venezuela, even Cuba. Although recently the FBI finally decided to admit that there was no sonic attack on the U.S. embassy in um, in Havana. The really worrying—I um, mean, that's that's not even a threat. I mean, we know what the plan is for Afghanistan, and that's another one which I think is amazing because uh, what's amazing is that basically that surge is nothing new that's been tried in the past many times and failed. And the second part is to basically sanction Pakistan. I mean, it's, it's, it's again, one of those examples where you wonder, you know, what the IQ, the average IQ is of the people who advise the president, because if you try to solve a conflict here in Afghanistan, how do you do that without having a single neighboring country supporting you? It's, it just blows my mind that the one country that the U.S. still could in speaking terms with, was Pakistan. And what does Trump do? He promulgates a policy on Pakistan, which resulted in the um, Pakistani foreign minister just simply saying overtly in uh, Wall Street Journal, he said, we don't have an, an alliance with the U.S. anymore. That's not how allies behave. So, okay, Trump lo- lost Pakistan now. Good luck in Afghanistan, really. I mean, this is all the same stuff. It's 100 uh, percent reliance on force, and I would insist on that, dumb force, ineffective force, force that cannot work and can only result in backlash.
0: Well, what is your assessment of President Trump's recent verbal attack on Pakistan and the freezing of most military aid to that country? I doubt that Trump came up with this by himself. What is your sense of who is behind this broadside on Pakistan? The very same comes.
1: I don't think there's anybody around him left. I mean, he's surrounded by wall-to-wall neocons who are basically—their ideology is very simple. Israel first, violence everywhere, and no diplomacy. I would, that's how we sum it up. Uh, in their opinion, diplomacy is basically issuing threats and sanctions. That's the sole function of of, the, of uh, foreign affairs. That's it. And um, in, in case of Pakistan, again, it's—I don't think there's anybody in this entire country who believes that this will work not a single area specialist, I don't believe anybody in the U.S. military believes that sending more forces to Afghanistan, uh, giving them more leeway, and then sanctioning Pakistan is going to, in any way, shape, or form, um, allow the U.S. to, to walk out of Afghanistan or to get any victory, however you define victory. It is absolute, pure, unadulterated stupidity. Really, it's amazing.
0: Well, then, what about Afghanistan? It looks like the U.S. will be there forever. And this has primarily to do with the drug trade, don't you think?
1: You know, I don't know that the United States will be there forever uh, because it is a huge drain on the United States. The United States cannot afford it. And even if if, uh, the current uh, regime in Washington is indifferent to U.S. casualties, never mind local casualties, there is a cost in dollar and cents that even printing dollars out of thin air eventually has a hard time covering. So there's a real cost here. There's a very real political cost. So I would not say that I don't think the United States will ever get out. I think there will come a point where getting out will be so self-evidently demanded and obviously needed that I think it will happen. And uh, the second thing is that any solution for Afghanistan has to include three countries who have to agree on that, and that's Russia, Pakistan, and Iran. Short of those three countries agreeing to any solution, there will be no solution. Therefore, since uh, the U.S. is not on speaking terms with either one of the three, never mind all three, uh, what I predict is basically more of the same, only worse, until the United States truly pulls out under duress in the worst possible circumstances, at which point the three countries that I mentioned, again, Iran, Pakistan, and Russia, will have to do what Russia is trying to do with Syria, gather a regional conference, from which the United States will obviously be excluded. Uh, China will probably be included, by the way. And they will try to come up with a workable solution that will basically stop conflict in that region. I think that's where we're headed. Would it happen short-term? It really depends on how, how badly Trump — well, I shouldn't say Trump, his administration because I don't think as much of a say — will mismanage everything. I mean, they they are truly going really rapidly and screwing up everything. So I don't know. It could happen, enough not to a distant future. All I see ahead for the United States and international relations is one disaster after another. That's all that they can achieve with that combination of violence, threats, and lack of intelligence.
0: And what about the drugs coming out of Afghanistan? That's important to the U.S., isn't it, and the, the banking sector? What do you think?
1: I'm aware of that. I hear a lot of uh, discussion about that, but I'm not sure that the neocons care about it that much. I'm sure there are interest groups in the United States who have a vested interest in that. I'm under no illusion about the level of corruption in the U.S. military and particularly intelligence, uh, because uh, a basic trick is that anything that's classified is also out of public scrutiny. So it's well known that intelligence services have a tendency of, of going rogue and corrupt just because it's so easy for them. So I think these interests are there, but the neocons are kind of single-issue uh, people. I don't think they see that as a—maybe as a, uh, if some of them have personal vested interests, yes, but um, I have no reasons to believe at this point—maybe I'm missing something, and I probably do— that the Trump administration the key people around him have, uh, have an interest in the drug trade. It might be so. If it is so, I'm not aware of it.
0: Now, you've talked about the neocons being in control. What about the suggestion that the military is running the U.S.? We have James Mattis as Defense Secretary, John Kelly as Homeland Security Secretary, and H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor. What do you think about that?
1: Uh, Actually, I don't think it's an argument uh, that says that the military is in control because uh, first of all, I tend to see when, when I at least in my mind when I speak of the military I talk about people with the rank of colonel and below and a' few generals but generals are political appointees and amongst uh, the core of generals that uh, the United States um, that the presidency can choose from, these are all um, very much political generals um, and they in my mind represent more a political, and corporate interests, and truly military interests, these are not—even if Mattis has his reputation of being this fighting man, I don't think he's at all. Uh, and we've seen that already under Obama, and actually began under Bush. The military is purged from true military men and replaced by—yeah, they're generals. There's an argument—I'm not arguing against that. But do they really represent the interests of the of U.S. armed forces? I don't think so. I, uh, I'm absolutely convinced. Um, you know, I studied in the United States in the late 80s, early 90s, and some of the people, I mean, a lot of those that I studied with now became uh, U.S. servicemen, high-ranking officers, et cetera. I know that generation of people. They're not stupid. So a lot of them are very well-educated. You get a sense that American generals are, are, are stupid by listening to the political appointees that we have now, but they don't represent truly the American officer corps or even most American generals. I don't think anybody in CENTCOM seriously, and officially they'll say whatever they're required to, but nobody thinks that this new plan for Afghanistan is going to bring anything but disaster. So considering how unmilitary that thinking is, I would have to conclude that the true military doesn't have much of a say at all um, in what's happening right now. And if I may add, and that worries me very much, because uh, during the Cold War, and I think in in the 90s, the U.S. military... In crucial moments, they were the ones who showed restraint and responsible behavior. I specifically think of the war um, that Georgia attacked the Russian peacekeepers in Georgia. They did act responsibly I mean there was a there are several instances where the us military they you know they could cool it off. There were people uh, like Admiral Fallon who said you know there's not going to be any war on Iran well uh, against Iran while he's on one on his watch. So I always thought of U.S. military as being, you know, tough guys, patriots, yes, but not reckless ideological idiots, pardon my French. Uh, what we see now makes no sense to me. I can't conceal that being a, the real product of, of um, U.S. military.
0: I see. So we've had quite a discussion about the neocons being in control. How would you define a neocon, just to make it quite clear to listeners?
1: Uh, well, as I said, I think it's, uh, it's a person who is Israel firster, very, very strong Zionist uh, ideological bent, definitely puts Israel above the United States for sure. Uh, secondly, I would say people who truly believe in violence and force as a way to solve every conflict. Um, the opposite of that is that people who have no use for diplomacy, uh, internally or externally, for that matter. Um, a messianic ideology. They are right. They are the best, and uh, they get to to make the calls. They don't need to consult or treat anybody with anything but contempt or bribery. So it's a very it's a very shallow kind of ideology, much less sophisticated than anything previously in the United States. I mean, there was always you know imperialism in in, in the United States and and um, and colonialism, but the folks in charge were much more refined, much more complex, multi layered. Neocons are very primitive in what they do and how they operate. They're also very predictable.
0: And, of course, there are a, a lot of neocons. Maybe, could you maybe mention the names of a few of them?
1: I think right now, at, at this point in time, all of them are on Trump. I mean, uh, I wouldn't even go into a list. I think they're either active neocons or, or people uh, who, um, you know, support the neocon line. For instance, Tillerson would not be one of them. And yet, clearly, he's singing the same tune as they do. So at this point in time, I really think that looking at personalities, it's really too late. Um, And you can judge the the relevance of a person by the difference he or she makes. Tillerson couldn't even handle Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley is not intelligent enough to even be called a neocon, but does she totally parrot their line? Absolutely. So it's it's like everybody. I don't see a, a single exception.
0: Yes, and of course, Nikki Haley is our ambassador to the U.N. Yes. Now, does she report to Tillerson or or to Trump? I'm not sure if she reports to either one of them, uh, to be honest. I mean, formally to both. I mean, certainly
1: to Tillerson. But uh, we also saw the same um, degradation of Tillerson from uh, from what he was as a person before he, he got the appointment, his initial uh, tenure, and then it just went downhill. Just like uh, Trump. Trump's... What he's doing now is the opposite of what he promised during his uh, election campaign. His last moment of, of, I think, glory was his inauguration speech, which I thought was amazing. And then after that, it just went downhill. Um, they, the neocons got rid of the two dangerous guys for them, which was Flynn and Bannon. Uh, they made Trump surrender these men, particularly Flynn, very rapidly. And after that, once he caved in, there was no stopping. So now we have this just endless appeasement. Um, I think all of U.S. policy will just be an endless appeasement of neocons starting, uh, you know, a couple of months ago already. And at this point, individuals don't even make a difference anymore. There's nobody with a personality, a backbone, or a brain left anywhere in the U.S. decision-making.
0: And how were General Flynn and Bannon a threat to the neocons?
1: Well, first and foremost, because they did not at all share their ideology. Um... Mind you, neither of them are particularly heroes of mine. I can't say I have... I think Flynn would have actually been a good national security advisor. Uh, he had his own problems in blind spots. Uh, I'm not necessarily endorsing his nonsense about Iran and, and China, by the way. But he was right on Russia, and I think he was right on Syria, at least generally, if compared to the others. And Bannon comes from a very different kind of ideology, which we all know about. You know, that's sort of all rights right, and and... This is the ideology that is totally different from what the neocons have. So they knew they had a, an insider that was dangerous to them, Flynn, and they knew that they had this ideological influence over Trump that they needed to remove. And they removed both. And uh, their victory is total.
0: I'm speaking with author and military analyst The Saker. Today's show, Looking Into 2018. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I wanted to follow up on a remark you made earlier in the discussion. You said that the United States has now admitted that there was no sonic attack on the American embassy in Cuba. Is that what you said?
1: Yes, I saw a report yesterday. I could look it up uh, in front of the computer. But yes, I believe that the FBI recently said that there was no sonic attack. I saw that yesterday. I didn't read it very deeply because I never believed there was one, so I'm not so, don't take it 100% to the back, but I believe that's what I said yesterday that the FBI reports said that there was no sonic attack in Cuba, correct?
0: Well, that's very weird. Then, then why do you think that was put out? Just to demonize the Cubans or something?
1: Yes, because the way the neocons. Uh, actually, yes, I see it. FBI doubts sonic attacks on ABC News. So, yes. And this, theweek.com also reports that no sign of sonic attack. The neocons try to create conflict everywhere. That's their sole, uh, you know, tool in their toolkit. So Cuba is a problem, but Israel is a problem. And the list of countries can go on and on and on. And the way they operate is very simple. Create chaos, uh, subvert the country, tension, 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 threat, 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 violence, violence, violence. It's all they do. They're very, very unsophisticated people. And their actions are, you know, it's all the same. There's no difference.
0: You refer to the new national security strategy of the United States released in December of 2017 by the Trump administration as the U.S. being in full paranoid mode with enemies everywhere. I thought that a lot of it read like a projection onto other nations of what the U.S. itself was doing. Did you have that impression as well? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Uh, For instance, all this uh, talk
1: about Russians interfering in U.S. elections is really just uh, the list of accusations of what the United States has been doing in Russia for years, and elsewhere too, but particularly in Russia, um, for years. And everybody knows that, and it's it's exactly it. It's a projection, but it's also, there's more to that than just a projection. I mean, for every action, there is a reaction. And uh, it is true that by antagonizing the entire planet simultaneously, the United States sends two signals, first of all, a signal of weakness, because a strong uh, power does not act that way. It doesn't have any need for that. Uh, for instance, strong power always makes a threat, uh, never publicly. That's basic rule. You don't do public threats. You always do them privately. Um, but the second thing is it's also by fighting everybody, it sort of forces everybody to resist, and at the same time, it makes it easier. Because if your list of targets is—I I, I have seven countries in my list of primary U.S. targets. If the U.S. truly f- focused all its forces on one target only, carefully chosen, eh, maybe the chances would be better. But when you're taking, and mind you, my seven, uh, my, uh, list of seven countries does, it, does not even include China. And that could, you know, it could happen again, because there was a lot of uh, anti-Chinese rhetoric coming out of, of Trump. So it could even go to eight. Uh, it's actually, uh, I think it encourages people to resist. So good, if you were in Venezuela and you realized that, well, everybody else is having a—the U.S. is spread all over the place. They basically cannot concentrate truly their, all their, F, you know, means and energies on, on, on to you. So maybe there's an opportunity here, and I think there is.
0: Well, then that sounds pretty stupid from the point of view of the United States to, to have this huge enemies list.
1: Yes, it is stupid. I absolutely agree. I'm shocked to say that. I always feel a little funny calling, you know, an entire administration of well-paid people with many of them have diplomas and, you know, academics calling them stupid. But when I look at the output, when I look, for instance, at, you know, the policy towards Afghanistan, I don't see any other words. So Trump might sound like an idiot, but people around him don't sound like that. Yet they do stupid things. So collectively, yes. I mean, it's it's not a normal term used in uh, international relations. But yeah, we speak of stupid. I think that that actually fully applies.
0: In your essay, The End of the Wars on the Cheap for the United States, how do you define war on the cheap and the use of U.S. special forces, which began in Afghanistan? What are you referring to?
1: I was referring to um, right after the end of the Cold
0: War, special ops became very
1: popular and they were used very successfully Um, in Afghanistan. Basically, they were used as forward air controllers. Um, So you basically don't need to put boots on the ground. You bring in the Air Force. You put your special ops inside enemy insurgent units, and you use them to coordinate airstrikes. So you rely on, on firepower provided by helicopter or aircraft, which is kind of paradoxical because, you know, this is basically what the Russians have been doing in Syria, really. Uh, that's why the Russians got away with using so little um, hardware, because it's it's fairly cheap. I mean, the entire Russian operation in, in Syria, as far as I know, is still within normal uh, budget of the Ministry of Defense. So they used budget from training and deployment, et cetera. They didn't even have to increase their military spending for the full operation. So that it is objectively cheap in terms of dollars, and it's objectively cheap in terms of uh, your own soldiers dying. But what happens? Uh, There's a number of prerequisites which are very important. You need to be able to rely on boots on the ground. In the case of Afghanistan, the Northern Alliance provided crucially that that shield for the U.S. Special Forces. The U.S. did not just send in you know, a brigade in; they were sending small units protected and surrounded by uh, local uh, people. That is what the United States does not have in Syria. Uh, it also relies, I think, to a large degree on the enemy feeling. That it's hopeless to resist, but that doesn't work anymore at all. The United States has been um, that works to some degree with with uh, Iraq's first war for sure, second already maybe to it initially, but now um, when I hear, for instance, rumors of you know the Israelis or the U.S. Uh, actually moving in forces into Syria, I think the um, the reconciled Hezbollah and Iranian soldiers. That are underground, they just dream of it. They dream to getting finally their hands on some GI's because they they've been denied that for for many years. So I think there's no fear left, and that's where the this entire strategy of war on the cheap collapses.
0: So then, how is it that America's wars on the cheap may be coming to an end? You're saying because what uh, the people aren't afraid enough anymore? Yeah, they haven't yielded
1: a single victory. I mean, that's really what's happening. The United States is, is losing military power. It's not a, the U.S. is not a credible military threat anymore, even though it still has, you know, 10 or whatever aircraft carriers and, you know, nuclear weapons. But they can issue threats, and people go, yeah, and, and they accept that. And just defeat after defeat after defeat, we're coming back to the realizations to actually have loots on the ground is the only way to win a war at least in most wars, there are a few exceptions. The case with the DPRK, how do you explain that the North Koreans are not afraid, clearly are not impressed by Trump's threats? I mean, the fact that he launched a missile on the 4th of July is just so provocative. So they're actually provoking him. It tells you that, in the opinion, and I think correct analysis of the North Korean um, um, generals,
0: there is no credible threat coming from the United States. And I think they know that. So the wars with the sheep are, are, are finished. You have written that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is the big unknown here. Your essay draws a very frightening picture of the consequences of a U.S. attack on the DPRK. In your essay, debunking the flag waving myths about an attack on North Korea, you write that one of the most overlooked potential consequences of a war with the DPRK is that its missiles are probably capable of striking the greater Tokyo area and adjacent Japanese industrial areas. How catastrophic would this be?
1: Well, let me tell you, uh, after I wrote that article, I got an email from an intelligence officer. uh, I will say like this, stationed in Asia, I won't go any uh, further, but I will say that he's from a friendly country to the United States who told me that I even underestimated the threat. First of all, I don't believe that North Korea has warheads. I think they have nuclear devices. I don't think they can deliver them. And I don't think they have real ICBMs yet. But putting aside this entire discussion about Guam and Hawaii, my concern was that they could definitely hit uh, with conventional missiles or even nuclear missiles hit, as you say, the greater Tokyo area in central Japan. And that would have major economic consequences because... Um, the, the entire economies of the of the Far East are very highly integrated, and if you disrupt that, everything stops. I got a letter from this uh, intelligence analyst who said that I underestimated the threat just by having economic chaos in South Korea, because he says that the ports in South Korea are crucial. A lot of what produced is produced in China is actually manufactured in Korea and then assembled in China. So I warned the Korean Peninsula would also stop a lot of the manufacturing in China. It would dramatically affect shipping through the entire region and even air movement because crucial airports are also located in South Korea, which I had overlooked, and yes, of course, in Japan. So we're looking at a paralysis of basically Far East Asia economically, which would be devastating economically worldwide. And this is not something that's usually discussed.
0: You write that the Chinese have said that they will not allow chaos and war on the peninsula. A quote from China in your essay. If North Korea launches an attack that threatens the United States, then China should stay neutral. But if the United States attacks first and tries to overthrow North Korea's government, China will stop them. It sounds very dangerous to me. And, of course, the Korean War of the early 1950s was a war of aggression, waged by the United States against Korea. The North Koreans have not forgotten that.
1: Yes, indeed, they have not forgotten that. And I would also say that the quality of the U.S. servicemen then uh, was way higher than what it is today. And yet it was a really tough, hard war. I mean, it, and I get a lot of emails after, a that article, I got a lot of emails from Korean vets who are telling me their personal experience fighting there. This is a terrible place to fight. And what the Chinese can do is basically inject people like they did in the first Korean War. Because it's not going to be a high-tech war. Uh, North Korea will lose the control of the airspace almost instantaneously. Most of the North Korean Navy will disappear almost instantaneously. Everything that you think of high-tech, uh, the North Koreans cannot compete with the U.S. whatsoever. But the, the terrain is such that they can use—they can force— the adversary to go World War II again, or Korean War, which is essentially the same thing. And then uh, the Chinese can definitely do that. And they cannot allow uh, the U.S. to take over North Korea because they know they're next. They're also cornered, just like Russia cannot allow the U.S. to take over uh, the Donbass. The Chinese cannot allow—I don't make a comparison between the regimes. I'm just saying neither country can afford to have a hostile power right there. And I think the Chinese have very good options to uh, to actually support the North Koreans, even if they're reluctant to do so. I don't think the Chinese are happy with uh, the kind of regime that is in place in uh, North Korea. I know for a fact the Russians are miserable about it. They don't think of the DPRK as a trusted ally. But the reality is that there's better and then there's worse. And allow allowing the United States to either you know nuke the place massively or invaded or do some other things which the U.S. is threatening It's not something that either country can allow.
0: I'm speaking with author and military analyst The Saker. Today's show looking into 2018. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In 2018, war or no war, you make an assessment of the likelihood or unlikelihood of war with a list of countries that are in the crosshairs of the neocons. Let's look at the nuclear deal with Iran. How likely do you think this treaty will be abrogated?
1: Again, um, I know there's opposition to that abrogation. It would be illegal and unilateral. Unilateral. But considering the folks in power in the White House, I think it will be abrogated. I'm sorry to say, I think I'm no fan of Barack Obama. I truly am not. But the one thing he did right, it was that treaty. And uh, that's the one thing that Trump is actually going to successfully overturn. I think the chances are good that this treaty will be abrogated, yes. Will that result in war after that? No, not automatically. Uh, I don't think the U.S. or Israel or the Saudis have the stomachs to start a full-scale war against Iran.
0: What about U.S. backing the Nazis in Kiev in an attack against the Donbass? I guess this is ongoing, right? It is
1: ongoing. And as I mentioned to my great concern, I think the United States will continue and increase that backing, because no matter what happens, uh, the United States does not pay much of a big price. I mean, for instance, we just mentioned Iran. If that policy fails, there will be very serious consequences for both Israel and the United States. The U.S. doesn't have much to lose in, if you look at the Donbass, uh, the eastern Ukraine, because let's say the, the Nazi regime starts another war. If it is successful, well, great. You know, the Russians will be defeated, the Donbass will be under Kiev control, and the Americans will say, well, we did it. So there's, that's a good outcome from their point of view. Again, I insist their point of view. Say that Nova Russians win, which is what I think would most likely happen. Um, that would be the worst outcome from the point of view of the neocons, and obviously the best from the point of view of Russians and everybody else with Spain. Um Well, the neocons will then explain that outcome by blaming Russia as they did the last two times around. They'll do the same, saying, okay, well, clearly the Russians have invaded uh, the Ukraine again, because let's look at the destruction of the Ukrainian army. It could not be the Nova Russians, therefore, the Russians are to blame. That is the least desirable outcome from the neocon point of view. Not mine again, I'm insisting to clarify that. Uh, but it's the one that's acceptable to them. Option three, which is actually their dream, is to force Russia to overtly intervene. That was the worst possible outcome, I think, for from my point of view, is that uh, Nova Russians are not capable of defending the local militias. The attack is successful, at which point Russia will have no other option but to intervene, which is a dream come true for the neocons, because then the full-scale Cold War against Russia NATO suddenly found a mission that is credible defending, you know, the Western civilization against the revanchist Russian hordes, etc. Keep in mind that uh, the, the Donbas itself has no value whatsoever for the United States. Neither does the entire Ukraine, by the way, at, that, at this point. The only part of the Ukraine that was of interest to the United States is Kiev, and, uh, sorry, it's the Crimea, and that's not going to happen anymore. So for them, the sole value of the Ukraine is to force, to harass Russia, to keep sanctions on Russia. It's a platform for anti Russian operations. That's what it is. And they will continue that, unfortunately. I don't see any hope for a rational approach to it.
0: You've noted that what will not stop is the full spectrum demonization of Russia. Thus, the relationship between the two countries will further deteriorate. You mentioned the possibility of the U.S. disconnecting Russia from the SWIFT network for financial communications or the seizure of Russian assets. How likely, in your view?
1: I think I should say that I'm not confident to, to, uh, to make a projection on that. Uh, I'm not by training an economist. I published an article by one economist on my blog, which I highly recommend, which discusses that issue, whether it's technically doable, whether Russia already has, well, Russia does have an alternative that's being developed, to what degree that alternative is viable, to what degree China can help. Um, I'd rather not make a prediction or even qualify the consequences of either move, Uh, Putin has repeatedly warned the Russian business community to—he has urged them to bring their money back to Russia, saying, you know what, it already started once in Cyprus, and it can happen again. Bring your money back before it sees. So I think something of that kind is being prepared, yes. Um, Which one will they go for? The Russians have made uh, kind of threats— that there will be very serious consequences if if they are disconnected from SWIFT. I don't know whether this is actually posturing or not. It's unclear to me what Russia can do in either circumstance. Um, I know that Russians will never start a war over something economic, that's for sure, or even for minor attacks. They are, for very good reasons, extremely war-averse, and that will be truly only as a last resort in self-defense. What are the other options? I don't know. Putin is a very intelligent man, and he has a superb set of, uh, of advisors who so far have done a very good job, they might come up with a response that, I, that I'm totally unaware of. So this to me is a big question mark. All I will say is that it seems to me in the logic of the current rhetoric that I hear from the White House that there should be more tension and sanctions and harassment uh, against Russia coming this year, yes.
0: You've written that one of the most formidable weapons in the Anglo-Zionist arsenal was not the nuclear bomb or the aircraft carrier, but a propaganda machine that for decades successfully convinced millions of people around the globe that the U.S. was invincible. Is this no longer the case? Yeah, I think it's actually, uh, this is, nobody believes that anymore. I think this has fully, truly changed
1: over the past well decade at least, maybe more. Um, the purpose of any use of any military force is to achieve a political objective. I don't see any political objective that the United States military has accomplished on behalf of the United States. It's just not happening.
0: In your essay, When Sanity Fails, The Mindset of the Ideological Drone, you write about the glorification of ignorance that is the hallmark of the imperial mindset. How do ignorance and empire go hand in hand?
1: Oh, in in so many ways. I think it's crucial for empire. Empire really are based on an ideology, and it's a social one, not even a political one. You have to have this belief that others either need or want you to rule over them. And ignorance is what makes that possible. Because as soon as you become aware of the immoral nature of the empire, of, of the human value of those that you oppress, murder, kill, exploit, and otherwise, you know, terrorize, Um, You're becoming subversive. You're becoming disloyal to the empire. You start thinking in in moral categories, whereas ignorance is what makes it all possible. Either people don't know what's happening, or if they do, they're propagandized and socially brainwashed into not thinking correctly about it, like Orwell's double thinking is exactly that. You know that you're hated worldwide, at the same time you think that the U.S. is a mission to lead the world. I mean, there's a complete contradiction between those two concepts simultaneously. And yet a lot of people in the United States, I mean, those who still buy the official propaganda, and that's changing. I think that's not the majority. But in the past, yeah, a lot of Americans, I think, really believed. And why did they believe that? Because it was not only taught to them by propaganda ministry, but it was taught to them at home, and schools, and particularly in movies. The the single most important, um, I don't know I should say training tool, I would say education tool or training tool is the TV, which people watch for several hours per day. That has its own reality. People who watch TV live in a a different world, which has very little resemblance to the real world out there. And within that abstract reality, all these things make sense to them. So that's why that, that ignorance, that lack of awareness uh, it's crucial. That's why, you know, the system doesn't foster travel abroad, it doesn't foster the study of foreign languages. When Americans travel abroad, they tend to travel in groups and to stick to English-language groups. And then you have the other kind, which is the Americans you can see all over the planet, which have gone lo- lo- uh, what is it called in English? It's called the native. You
0: know, they, they learn
1: the language, they learn the culture, they completely adapt to—and they understand exactly what's happening, but these people are all lost in the empire. From the imperial point of view, they become subversive, because they see through all the the propaganda.
0: And with regard to the neocons uh, treating our entire planet to a never-ending barrage of threats, you say that this situation places a special burden of responsibility on all other nations— especially those currently in Uncle Sam's crosshairs, to act with restraint and utmost restraint. You write that Iran, Russia, and China particularly are acting with the utmost restraint. You quoted Russian President Vladimir Putin as having said that, quote, it's difficult to talk to people who confuse Austria and Australia. Just how dangerous is the world's situation presently?
1: It is extremely dangerous, and the outcome will depend on how sophisticated and careful the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians will be, because, you know, the the people who confuse Austria and Australia have have nuclear weapons. And to go into quick-fix solutions to respond, you know, tit for cats, let me give you a perfect example. Say the United States shoots down a Russian aircraft over Syria. Before Putin gives the authority—now, he gave the authorization for self-defense. That authority is already vested in the local commanders. But, you know, you could make the argument that maybe a retaliatory strike would be um, correct and and appropriate. And we saw that situation when the Turks shot down a a Russian bomber. There was talk of how the Russians could use cruise missiles to hit the airbase from which the Turkish aircraft— took out from, and the Russians didn't do that. And I think it was correct, not only because eventually Putin turned the situation in Turkey pretty much 180 degrees around, but because every time you say, let's, let's make a retaliatory strike, you have to think, what's the risk of international nuclear war? And I think because Trump and the people around him are so again, stupid and immoral, and reckless, and ignorance that they don't think of these categories is not an excuse for for the Russian or the Chinese or the Iranian leaders to act likewise. They have to exercise the utmost restraint. This is like defusing a bomb in a building. You don't get to just blow it up because you're irritated with it. So, yes, my only hope is for these people to do the right thing. I have absolutely no hope left whatsoever in the sanity of U.S. decision-makers.
0: None. Any last words, Saker? I'm tempted
1: to say, God help
0: us all, because I'm sorry, uh,
1: the situation is really bleak. I have to say, it is bleak. Uh, I hope—my big hope is, A, of course, (laughs) God's mercy, two, let's hope that those in power in the White House are so busy uh, fighting each other, the U.S. elites are so involved in an internal conflict that they won't have the resources or the energy to allocate to external conflicts. And that that leaves the time for everybody else to prepare and continue to gradually, you know, region by region, chip away at the empire. What what the world needs is a gradual elimination of that empire, not uh, uh, any form of collapse. Collapse
0: is bad. Thank you again for a great analysis.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure and always an honor. I'm a big admirer of yours, as you know.
0: I've been speaking with The Saker. Today's show has been Looking Into 2018. The Saker is an expert in military analysis, intelligence issues, Russian geopolitics, and traditional Christian orthodoxy. He was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe, where he lived most of his life. After completing two college degrees in the United States, he returned to Europe, where he worked as a military analyst until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia and Kosovo. He returned to the United States and has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker, and his essays have attracted a large audience. He is the author of The Essential Saker, From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World, and his latest, The Essential Saker 2*. Visit thesaker.is. the S-A-K-E-R dot I-S. I-S stands for Iceland. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsandButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsandButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at g Radio. Yo, these are some serious times that we live in G. and our new world order is about to begin, you know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine, you dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, of your own cipher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what side yourself, for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me?